Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on the new Aleph, Soma connected with a dangerous group called the Kaze cult, hoping to gain allies. And Aramis found out that hundreds of people want to join the group planning to escape Pan. And now, chapter 16 of the new Aleph. Soma lagged behind, staying with Hune and Sorensen as Carl and two of his friends, a man and a woman who had been in the attic office with them earlier, led them up a steep trail into the woods surrounding the valley. He and one of the friends were each carrying a chair. One was wood and looked very old. The other was a standard metal fold-up. Soma leaned over by Hune. I hope he's not taking us out here to try and murder us. Sorensen shook her head, her expression grave. Only Carl is armed, and his pistol fires bullets. Hune smirked. Soma felt left out. Sorensen gestured at Hune. Bullets are metal. Metal comes from stone. Bullets are Hune's specialty. Hune smiled. I'm really good at bullets, and they're not easy to do. You can stop bullets. Mm-hmm. The affirmative was delivered as if Soma was a student that had just guessed the right answer to a question. Okay. Carl and the two others stopped ahead of them in a little clearing. The sun had only been up for a couple hours, so the view of the plains east of the city was covered in gold light. All of them formed a circle around Carl and the two chairs set up on the ground. Carl folded his arms a moment, staring very seriously at the chairs before gesturing at them. What's different? Everyone looked at Soma. She shook her head. Everything. Other than they're both chairs. Carl unbuttoned the cover of the little mini pistol holster on his belt. From it, he pulled out a green plastic toy pistol. He used it to point at the two chairs as he talked. One of these is not as real as the other. The man and woman standing on either side of Carl looked bored, like they'd heard this speech before. But Soma and her two companions were wholly focused. Carl continued, One is old, handmade. The other was taken from SSG housing. But it goes deeper than that. Soma waited. Carl was enjoying his audience's attention. He tapped on the metal folding chair with the toy gun, his face twisting up into a wolf-like grin. You have a pen in your pocket that gives you the ability to create things out of thin air. Not everything, but a lot of things. Things like this chair. Why? Soma shrugged. The Alephs are real. People's souls can be erased from existence due to clerical errors. Everything I... Thought I knew about the world was wrong, so why shouldn't pens be able to create chairs out of thin air? Carl snorted, pointing the gun up into the air and looking at the ground. That's a good start, but there is an answer. Carl pointed the gun at the wooden chair, holding his aim for a moment before he turned and aimed instead at the metal folding chair. He pulled the trigger and the plastic gun made a mundane click followed by a crack of air as the folding chair changed. It turned into a floating skeleton of bluish-white glowing lines. Lines of light, 
like the glow of the east horizon in the distance. Soma stumbled back into a bush. She might have fallen over if Hune hadn't caught her and pulled her back to her feet. She stared at the thing. It was an abstraction of a chair. And numbers. Curiosity growing in tandem with fear, Soma stepped toward the thing. Dotted along the lengths of the lines and all around the squares were numbers, all of them beginning with the letters SR. They had the same fake glowing look as the squares and the lines. She knelt down by it and held a hand next to the thing, but the light did not illuminate her skin. She tried to touch a line, but her fingers passed through it like it was a beam of sunlight shining through dust motes. The hell am I looking at? Carl and his two companions laughed. Carl pointed the gun at the wooden chair and pulled the trigger. It clicked like before, but the wooden chair did not transform. It flashed blue, twice, rapidly, then remained normal. Carl squatted down by the folding chair's abstract. He gestured at a cluster of numbers with the gun. This chair was created from a library of pre-designed items. That's why the SSG can provide food and supplies to people without burdening the middle class. I say middle class and not rich because taxes in a quasi-socialist society only ever hurt the middle class. But you're not interested in politics right now. Soma was shaking. The wooden chair was made by hand? Is that what I'm supposed to assume next? Carl nodded. It takes up more space. Not soul space. Something else. Anything made with an Aleph key, anything the SSG provides, can be simplified to just a few numbers. But not something handmade. Soma had a bad feeling about the ultimate explanation for all this, because she was starting to guess what it was. What are the numbers? They're called rivets. They're all the specific changes to the original design. Wear and tear, imperfections in manufacturing, everything to make it look real. Soma reached out a shivering hand toward the wooden chair and rested her fingers against it. She held them there a moment, comforted by its realness. Chairs. Not just chairs. Carl turned to the side, pointing the toy gun at a tree nearby and pulled the trigger. The tree cracked and turned into a glowing line skeleton like the chair. Then he shot another. And another. And five more in two bushes. All of them turned into glowing skeletons covered in numbers. Someone was having trouble breathing. Hume came up beside her and put a hand on her shoulder. She looked up at him and saw that he was upset, but clearly not as overwhelmed as she was. She looked at Sorensen as she stood up and dusted off her knees. Sorensen didn't look phased at all. She looked back at Soma and shrugged. It can be unsettling. Soma turned back to Carl. Why? Carl nodded at her, then pointed his gun at each ghostly crooked abstract and pulled the trigger. The bushes and trees transformed back to normal. He pointed at the chair and it returned as well. Everything was solid and real again. Soma suddenly realized that maybe it had all been an illusion? It wouldn't have been that difficult compared to everything else she'd seen. She actually felt odd now to think about how she'd been so unsettled. Carl put the toy gun away and stuck his hands in his pockets. 
It's all software, everything. That immediately pulled Soma out of her shock. Her eyes narrowed. Software? Carl smiled and tapped his finger against the side of his nose. And not just chairs and trees and trains and cobblestones. Everything. You, me, everything. How else do you think souls can be erased? Soma frowned. The Ta did something. They somehow made it so souls are held in tanks or containers in the assassin. Carl shook his head. The Ta were programmers and engineers. They weren't sorcerers. They didn't create the world through forbidden knowledge. They didn't delve into hidden arts of creation, fundamental essences of reality, or whatever bullshit the history books say. They built a big computer and uploaded everyone's brain into it. Soma opened her mouth and was about to say something, but stopped. She looked at the chair. Okay, I saw them. The numbers floating in the air, yes. But I don't think it's enough. Soma turned away and looked east, toward the plains far below that still glowed gold. Carl kept talking behind her. The world is all a simulation. Ever taken a potion that takes you to a different world? To watch a live projection of Lower Empire? Ever used a midnight caller? It's all the same. This world is no more real than those. Soma kept looking to the east. She couldn't argue with a lot of what he was saying, but it wasn't the details she had a problem with. It was his conclusion. Something is wrong with the world, yes. It's twisted, but not an illusion. She turned around and saw Carl's intense, curious eyes boring into her. How can you know that for sure? Soma charged toward him, knocking the wooden chair over. She jabbed a finger against his sternum. I carried my daughters as they grew inside me. I took care of them when they were helpless babies, until they became brilliant and sharp, and that was real. I don't care what crazy evidence you come up with, they weren't numbers in a computer. Soma marched down the hill, Hune and Sorensen following right behind. Wait, I thought you wanted allies. I only showed you this because I wanted to help. You need to know the layout of your battlefield. We'll be in touch, yelled Soma without turning around. So, the deadline is a week away, and you're not leaving until Thursday? Aramis nodded before, remembering that Gail was on the other side of the back room of her shop and couldn't see her doing that. Yeah, it took forever to get everybody their tickets. The deadline is going to pass while we're on foot to the Narthex. At least we'll be dozens of kilometers from civilization. You'll have to walk over 150 of those, all told. Really think you can get everyone to keep up a strong enough pace to knock it out in just three days? Aramis didn't look up from the tiny, delicate conduits made of black-eyed steel she was inspecting. She was using a wire brush to clean scoring off so she could make sure they weren't worn down too much. They'd been pulled from some odd little gizmo Gail had found in a dumpster. She found a lot of stuff in dumpsters. I think we can do it. There's one of those old kinds of railroads out there that we can follow, so the terrain isn't that bad, and we won't get lost. That's how Paul found his way to Chrysoprase after he left the Narthex. 
A lathe spun up over by Gale, who yelled over the noise of it. Maybe if you were all just walking, but you've got food and clothing and shelter to carry. Aramis got a sick feeling in her stomach as she set aside one of the little conduits and picked up another to clean and inspect. We'll figure it out. If it takes a little longer, that's fine. Just so long we're out of the city before anybody realizes we're missing. I'll make sure to get enough food after the train drops us off in Chrysoprase. Which reminds me, would you be interested in buying a complete mobile machinist toolkit? There was no response from Gale. The lathe shut off and footsteps told Aramis she was walking over. The red-haired woman stood over Aramis's shoulder and spoke with a lofty, almost condescending tone. You're putting too much responsibility on yourself, Aramis. You don't have to babysit all these people. If they can't pay their own way, that's not your fault. I got them all in on this dumb idea. So? It's all for them! Gail leaned against Aramis's workbench and folded her arms, her frizzy short red hair tilting over lopsided. Here's what I'll do. Leave your tools here in Hawk. I'll give you a thousand rubles for the set. Aramis finally lifted her head up from her work. A thousand? That's a lot. Gail frowned at the ceiling. And you'll need a pack animal. I want you to take Liam Han with you. Aramis again stared down at her workbench and placed both hands flat on either side of the bins of old and worn conduits and center bodies and amber glass containers. Gail's leopard Animeca was one of her most beloved possessions. Probably only second to the multi-tools she kept on her belt at all times. Having Liam Ham with them to help carry supplies would make the journey immeasurably easier and safer. I don't know how to react to that. I'll key her this afternoon so that she responds to your gear watch. Just bring her back in one piece. Gail walked back to the lathe. Or with some of the older pieces replaced with newer ones, if you'd like. Don't worry, I'll need the favor returned eventually. I intend on collecting. No, I think she's insane, said Jin. Nathan looked up at his always confident face while stirring the spare bits of rice and vegetables floating in his gumbo. They were at a favorite restaurant of Jin's, the Tweed Amp, and on a small stage in the corner, a band that had been playing some sort of blues-slash-R&B fusion was now packing up their instruments. Nathan made a note to find out what the name of their group was once he was done arguing with Jin. Jin had invited him out to dinner, both so Nathan could take a break from his endless research and self-education of Maybar culture and history, and as a way for them to debate what to do about Aleph Dan. Nathan pushed his bowl away and folded his arms. She's recovering from trauma. Jin's confident face changed to a frown. I don't think you should try and make an alliance with her. Nathan immediately decided that this argument kind of ruined the part about this meal being a break. And Nathan's brain was pretty mush right now. She's too powerful to ignore. And at the moment, she's an enemy of my enemies. Jin's eyebrows went up and he nodded. True! But she's also my enemy. She's going to try and arrest half my business associates. And dozens of my lieutenants. You know that many soul offenders? Jin opened his mouth, but stopped as a very attractive waitress came over and took Nathan's bowl. 
As she smiled, Nathan suddenly thought about Valerie. A sting of guilt shot through him at running off the way he did. He probably wouldn't be thinking about this if he wasn't so tired right now. He felt more guilty again as he let his eyes linger on the waitress's figure as she walked away. No sense dwelling on this right now. It was just that thinking about Valerie usually made him feel lonely and depressed, which is why he usually just didn't. But then something strange happened. The waitress stopped walking. She turned around and gave Nathan a smile that could only be described as mischievous. She set his bowl down on another table, put her hands in her pockets, and sauntered back toward Nathan with hungry eyes on him. Nathan was extremely confused. Anyone with money probably is one. Jin's voice snapped Nathan out of the weird trance. What? Nathan looked at Jin. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the woman looking around confused, as if she had at the exact same moment been broken out of a trance as well. She shrugged it off, picked the bowl back up, and continued on as if nothing had happened. Soul offenders. People with money, good chance they are ones. Jin said firmly, noticing Nathan's aloftness. I have extra space, but I paid extra to make sure it was clean. I don't know, I guess I'm fond of homeless people. A huge chunk of stolen space comes from the euthanized vagrants of society. Nathan chewed on his lower lip, wondering if the strange look from the waitress had just been a hallucination. He needed to be getting more sleep. He turned back to Jin and sucked in a breath. It's going to be an ordeal trying to arrest so many people seated so high up in society. Are any of your friends going to turn themselves in? Hell no! Jin laughed and picked up a piece of bread from the table and inspected it. They'd end up in stove forever. Nathan frowned. I haven't heard of that one yet. Jin's eyes opened wide. Well, that surprises me. I thought all Alephs knew about it, since it's a prison specially designed for them. And for dangerous pravids. Which world is it on? Or is it its own world? Jin tore the piece of bread in half and began buttering one side. It's on hail. Whole world covered with monsters. No one ever comes back when they visit, you know, stuff like that. And no one wants to go there, even if the alternative is being hunted down and sentenced to death. Jin stuck out his lower lip. Most people don't think Dan will be able to do it. Find them all. It depends. If she puts out bounties, then maybe. You think she will? Jin bit off a hunk of the bread and spoke while chewing. I think either Aleph Dan will put out the bounties or the mayors will. It will probably be bad. Every shipbag out there, down on his luck, will be buying bonds with Pravids to get augments so they can hunt down the offenders. The streets will fill with wangs with crazy wasted conditions. Gun arms, poison breath, all sorts of stupid stuff they think will be useful. Sounds like it could be a mess. Remembered how you doubted that a war was coming? Jin sighed. Maybe now you realize why I need to negotiate with Dan. Jin nodded, taking another bite. Yeah. I don't know how your network works, but I have an offer I want you to spread. 
Carl fixed his intense eyes on Soma's. She, Hewn, and Sorensen were standing right outside the open front door of Carl's house. His associates were just inside, watching the exchange. Soma looked up at the circle windows of the attic office they'd all talked in yesterday. If the Kaze coat will be my eyes and ears throughout Pan, I'll share information with you, including early access to a restless, and I'll owe you a favor. I know you have a blood feud with the Soyu cult. Those are all nice promises. I'll consider it. Plus, I'll give you weapons to help with capturing soul offenders once I release the lists. Carl looked at the sky, considering this, and nodded while still looking up. Soma breathed out a sigh of relief. It will take me a few days to visit all 15 major cities. I'll make sure you know when I'm scheduled to arrive in each one, so you can have a representative meet me at each. Have them meet me outside each city hall, and I'll give them a weapon and the list before the mayors get it. That should give you a big head start on all the bounty hunters out there. Carl frowned. What about here? Our mayor won't meet with you. I will deliver the arrest list and evidence package, even if I have to throw them on a clerk's desk. The mayor can do whatever she wants with them after that. Soma turned to leave, took a few steps, then turned back around. And if my schedule leaks out, and as a result someone tries to kill me, I will find you and I will kill you. Carl shrugged. I would expect nothing less. As Soma, Hewn, and Sorensen walked down the road and the house shrunk smaller behind them, Soma looked up at the forest behind it. Sorensen, you didn't seem surprised at all by Carl's demonstration at the clearing yesterday. Sorensen gave up a hmm and nothing else as they passed modest houses with overgrown lawns. Is there another explanation for what we saw besides Carl's theory? Sorensen nodded. Carl stated the officially held theory of the assembly. It's what the silenced records say, that eight and a half centuries ago, a computer-simulated world called Maybar was created by a group of 22 people calling themselves the Ta. They were trying to save humanity from a disaster, which is why they picked the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Because they were the last chance. Soma nodded. A lot of that is very thematically similar to what I grew up learning. Sorensen wrung her hands a moment. At first, Maybar was not a very good simulation. Only a rough approximation. After four centuries, a disaster happened. While in the process of repairing the damage, an engineer named Onweume somehow changed everything, making the worlds indistinguishable. But she did not survive the transformation, so the main colonel that manages Maybar was renamed after her. The disaster damaged everyone's memories, causing panic. So the assembly came up with two false histories to help with the transition. Sorensen gestured at the sun. The story you heard was the one accepted in Prometheus. That the Ta built a generational ship and traveled to a new star and terraformed two mirror worlds, Pan and Prometheus, rotating on opposite sides of the same star. Well, that's not exactly the one I learned. Hewn made a soft humming noise to indicate that he was entering the conversation. The story changed a lot over time. Sorensen is a lot older than she looks. I mean, that comes with being an immortal. Obviously. 
Sorensen nodded gravely. My memory has been erased many times, but I still have some memories from before I was made into an immortal. Those never fully fade away. What I can piece together is that none of the stories people tell are true. Not the generational ship, not the hidden knowledge used to create the new universe, not the computer simulation. They're all wrong, though all of them likely have bits of truth in them. Soma chewed on her lower lip. Why were your, why were your memories erased? Hyun's voice was dark. Because she's a slave. If they don't erase the memories of immortals every 50 to 100 years, they tend to kill themselves. Sorensen was looking forward, her head tilted downward just slightly. There are other reasons that I'm not comfortable talking about. The road curved around and headed down the slope of the mountain in the opposite direction. Soma folded her arms. You said something about silenced records. Sorensen turned and looked at her eye to eye. They're hidden in rivet boxes. I do not know where. They have all the details about what actually happened. The disaster. Onwayumi's changes. Why the assembly really made the two false histories. They may also have the true history of what took place when humanity left Earth and when the change happened. Suma rolled her eyes. <sighs> Fictional histories, rivet boxes, glowing chair skeletons. I can't keep up with all this nonsense. Hewn rested a hand on Soma's shoulder for a second. Take your time. It's a lot. You can probably ask your sponsor any of those questions after the meeting coming up, though you may not want to trust everything they tell you. A sick sensation washed over Soma as she remembered about the assembly hearing that she had coming up very soon. I'm not looking forward to that. I still can't believe the assembly hasn't sent assassins after me yet. What about you, Hewn? What do you feel about all these theories about the construction of the world? Hewn sighed and put his hands in his coat pockets. I've known about all this for a while. Though yesterday was the first time I'd actually seen something reduced to its rivets numbers. The argument you made to Carl may be the best one I've heard, though. About my daughters? He nodded. I think you should hold on to that. No matter what anyone tells you. Eastbridge Station. Finally. Aramis had been awake the whole 12 hours of the train ride. Paul had not. He'd fallen asleep on her shoulder and had remained there for the last two hours, giving her a dull version of her temporary color syndrome the whole time. The two of them would be a comical sight, his huge frame resting on her proportionally tiny arm, but for her, it had been an odd sort of torment. And as a train rattled its way into Chrysoprase Eastern Station, on its hundreds of stubby little legs, she woke him. He moved away from her, and both the warmth on her shoulder and the colors around her faded. He straightened out and stood up to look for his bag under his seat, not appearing in the slightest to be embarrassed that he had been leaning against her, that he had fallen asleep against her. Making matters worse, his indifference showed that their slow bond had stagnated, or completely vanished. 
which meant that if they did need them to bond, they'd have to do the never-know bond. The prospect of that was slightly horrifying to Aramis. For her to do a never-know with Paul right now, with how differently they felt about each other, would be similar in scope to her getting him drunk and seducing him. At least in Aramis's mind, that's what it would feel like. Fortunately, Gail had given Aramis a backup plan. So she could push that dangerous rabbit trail aside in her head as she grabbed her bag and followed Paul to the stairs. She yawned and shook her head as she stepped down from the train and onto the stone platform. They were deep inside downtown Chrysoprase, surrounded by brick and stone buildings. The early morning sky was spotted here and there with air houses and airboats. Distracted a moment by that, which always caught her off guard because there were nowhere near as many of those floating houses over in Hemstock, she took a second to gather her bearings. The back of the train would be west, so she needed to go west. Wherever west was. The mountains were all east, so that meant the back of the train was the other way. You okay? Paul had been smiling at her as she had been spinning around on her heel, confused. She smiled back and marched to the back train cars. It's a good thing most of the group bought their own tickets, Aramis said as she gave her claim ticket to a train worker standing next to the last cars. All of them had rolling locker doors on the sides, of varying widths. It cost a lot of the money Gail loaned me to stow Liamhan on here. Paul shrugged. Should be worth it. Aramis took her watch off as the train worker found the right locker door and lifted it up with the roar of metal rollers. She handed the watch to Paul. Here, ride Liamhan to the rendezvous point. I need to go ask Milton and Aubrey about something. Aramis had made Paul's two friends into team leaders since they could remember being in some sort of military service during their lives on Prometheus. Uh, okay. You know, I've, I've never ridden anything like that before. Aramis gestured at the giant metal saber-toothed tiger machine. Neither have I. I already told her where we're meeting, so just tell her to go there. Aramis fumbled with some notes she had scribbled out during the train ride as Paul walked over to the locker. She found the note she was looking for just as she heard the rumble of Liamhan activating. Paul looked very uncomfortable as Liamhan lumbered out onto the platform, stared at Aramis, looked north, then looked at Aramis again with her head low. Her whole body was shivering and Paul looked very uncomfortable. Aramis walked up to the machine. Yes, I gave Paul my watch. He didn't steal it. And you know where to go. Liam Han made a sort of snorting noise and crouched down prone. Paul hesitated, then tentatively climbed into the saddle. Oh, oh, crap. As soon as he was seated, Liam Han stood up and pawed at the ground as if bored, scratching it lightly with its huge metal claws. Hey! The train worker saw this and pointed at the scratch. Tell your thing to knock it off or we'll charge you for that. Aramis shrugged at Liam Han and the machine calmed down, not shaking as much. Paul calmed as well. Liam Han then sauntered north, walking over the train platform gingerly, almost with sarcastic care. However, this had the side effect of making Paul look very regal, riding on the back of an oversized metal cat monster. Aramis couldn't help but sigh as she watched him his broad shoulders dipping to one side and then the other in rhythm with Liam Han's smooth movements. 
She couldn't help but stare at the heroic silhouette he struck and wish for the millionth time what she always wished for. Then Liam Ham stepped down from the platform onto a gravel road, snorted, and charged full speed along it. Paul hissing out an oh sure as he held on for dear life, not looking very heroic anymore. Aramis was watching, smiling, as Milton walked up. He wasn't smiling. Aramis turned to him. What's up? Bad news, boss. He gestured to the train with his thumb. About half the people who came with us, well, no good way to say it then, just to say it. They decided during the ride to run off to Merrim. Merrim? Why? Milton emphatically shrugged. Apparently, one of them heard that someone there is offering asylum from Aleph Dan. I guess they thought it would be easier than being smuggled to actual safety. Personally, I think they're a bunch of idiots. You put a solid plan together, kid. Aramis's forehead creased up, but she kept her voice calm and indifferent. Well, I'm still going to the Narthex. And I'm still coming with you. Around half of us still are, so you don't need to worry about that. Honestly, I think this just means we'll have more supplies, less people to worry about. Aramis stuffed her hands in her pockets. She suddenly realized she didn't know which people had bailed, so she didn't know which of her food-buying people were gone and which of her shelter-buying people were gone. And she couldn't get them all together now to ask them because the plan was to scatter as soon as the train arrived in order to avoid drawing attention. After scattering, they were supposed to go buy supplies in the city meet at a park on the northern edge, and throw all the gear in saddlebags they were going to drape across Lamhan. Now they may have to figure out those details when they meet and maybe send people back into the city to get the stuff they were missing. Aramis combed her fingers through her hair anxiously as she sorted this out in her head. There's something else I need to talk to you about. Sure, boss, what do you need? Aramis handed a piece of paper to him. There were some problems with the plan, so I had to get some help. I need you to go to this address, find this person, and figure out if they're a spy that's trying to stop us. Milton squinted one eye, but his mouth smiled. Really? No shit. Who is this person? An Aleph that wants to leave Pan. Possibly a soul offender also. Milton frowned. Oh... I have a feeling you don't want me to talk about this with anyone else, do you? Aramis looked off at the mountains, considering the potential danger she was putting everyone in and wondering if it was really worth it. No, don't tell anyone. Thanks for listening. Chapter 17 will be posting February 19th. To keep up to date on all Maybar-related news or to ask me questions, find me on most of the things at A. William Wright. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album, Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. As always, have a good couple weeks, guys.